Today's guest is a business futurist. He's co-creator of the Adapt Manifesto and author of a book titled Never Normal. It's all about adaptability. How do we adapt to the ever-changing and rapidly increasing innovation that's all around us? He's fantastic, grounded, but also forward-leaning. Please welcome Greg Verdino. You're listening to C-Suite Blueprint, the show for C-Suite leaders. Here we discuss no BS approaches to organizational readiness and digital transformation. Let's start the show. Hey, Greg, thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me, George. I love your book, Never Normal. Am I to believe that the duck and cover strategy is not a good one? <laughs> um, I would say it's probably not. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, in, on one side, I really love the title of your book and the whole premise because it's true, right? We, we need to adapt and, and we're on this, this ever increasing hockey stick of a curve of innovation. But on the other side, I also, dude, it stresses me out a little bit. Like as someone who's like always trying to be ahead of the curve a tiny bit and as someone who's worked on mindfulness and like being content, you know, now that I'm later in my life, it's like... Can I just relax a little bit? Can I can I settle into a groove just a tiny bit? I mean, maybe you can you could talk a little bit about how fast the change is and why it's important to adapt. Sure. So I think it's important, at least from my perspective and the way I think about change and the way the world is changing and what it means for us as individuals and what it means for our organizations to kind of break apart the concepts of transformation and adaptability. Obviously, they are closely related. They're both responses to this perpetual state of change. But one of the things that I've seen in my work as it relates to digital transformation in particular, and I'm sure you've seen the same kinds of things, is that both the individuals in the organization and the organization at large from a strategic standpoint, a business model standpoint, a technology standpoint, a cultural standpoint, feel this pressure to change. It's almost like you feel like you have to change everything all at once and that you will mm -hmm. never catch up. And of course, transformation, I mean, it sounds pat and it's trite, I guess, to an extent at this point, is a journey, right? And it's a journey without an end, uh, which is probably the only journey without an end, right? But, right. you know, I think this whole notion of digital transformation as it's become popularized in business over the past handful of years has created this intense pressure to make change truly transformative, to be big, to be profound at all times. Um, and I think that's mm -hmm. what's giving you a lot of that feeling of, can't I just take a breath? Can't I be mindful? Can't I, you know, kind of stop chasing the shiny object? And one of the things, and you know, really where my work around adaptability came from and the ideas that a colleague, Ian Patterson, and I put into the Adapt Manifesto, which is um, available at adaptmanifesto.org. It's a creative commons thing. Anybody can use it. Nothing to sell. <laughs> You know where those where the the principles in that manifesto came from are as we looked at the pressure that transformation put on organizations and we recognize the ways in which that could even potentially be damaging to an organization or the people in the organization we tried to identify sort of like the counter principles I mean certainly everybody at all times needs to be conscious of the change that's happening around us, 
acting on the things that are important and the, you know, kind of responding smartly and strategically to change. But not all change needs to be profound. Not all transformation needs to be digital, uh, for that matter. You know, so we do need to be, I think, on our toes and constantly in a position to respond to change, ready to respond to change. But we need to also be measured and smart and strategic about the way we change, where we change, how we change, when we change, and how much we change. And that in many ways recognize, although I don't believe adaptability means go slow, it does mean that small things, small steps we take sequentially over time add up to big change. Um, And that we can, as individuals and as organizations, be more you know, kind of be more measured in the kinds of things we do and, you know, embrace, you know, what shouldn't change at the same time as what should. And I think that's important. Uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it, it it sounds a heck of a lot better than the three-year transformation initiative where you have a, a warehouse full of consultants implementing some three-letter software vendor solution, right? You know, I, I definitely have come across more CEOs in the past few years that have kind of admitted, hey, this was a whoops-a-daisy. I tried to do too much all at once. and But yet I'm also seeing, because you know, we help clients every year with their, their strategy, their you know, one year, two year, three year and on. Yeah. And this year I've seen more of them come to me and say, our strategy is flexibility. Mm-hmm. And it, whereas before it was always, let's hit Let's hit a bigger number with less with less money. And it's like our our whole strategy is flexibility. I'm like, with what? They're like everything. I'm like, you know, that's very expensive, right? And so, like, how do you find that balance and adaptability as far as just being flexible in anything imaginable b- yeah. versus like finding that right adaptability? Yeah, the, the, I mean, like I could say a few things. I mean, you you've hit on something that I think is key and important, which is this idea of these organizations trying to do too much all at once, right? Um, and which again relates, you know, to this idea that we had of revolution through evolution, right? Of you know, don't try to do it all at once. Pick your poison, basically. You know, I think in the near term, for organizations to maintain a stance of flexibility or change readiness or agility or adaptability, whatever word you want to use for it, is critically important, right? We're in a phase of intense ambiguity, right? You know, none of us, you know, the, you know, there's the only thing that's certain about the future is it's uncertain. And mm-hmm. organizations do need to be able to hold multiple models in their mind at once, right? Which is a principle of even, you know, traditional futures thinking, right? This idea of the multiple futures, um, because you don't know exactly how something will play out. And you do need to have a stance that allows you to pivot quickly when when the environment changes around you. At the same time, I also think there's sort of a meaningful distinction in being reactive versus being responsive, right? You know, I and you know maybe it's semantics, but I think about reactive or reaction as sort of, you know, Anytime the wind shifts, you're blowing with that wind. And that that's the kind of thing that could cause a lot of chaos in an organization because you're really kind of, you're not pivoting, you're just kind of wiffle waffling all over the place versus responsiveness where you are being smart and strategic about the choices you make when you change direction. Um, so I think that that is, you know, flexibility as your clients are calling it is a viable near-term strategy. The other thing is sort of somebody who is a strategist by nature 
nature, though, is that ultimately, fundamentally, strategy is about choice. So at some point, the organization does need to place bets and make some decisions about the direction they will take and more or less hold to <laughs> over a course of time. So it might be a matter with your clients of, you know, kind of flexibility in the near term and a change ready, underlying change readiness for the long term, but the willingness to act on a conviction about what the future could and should be and how the company can create that future. Yeah. And the problem I find, though, is is even if they want to, you know, either react or respond, there's just so much debt that they deal with as an organization, right? Not just technical debt, but process debt, people debt. And, and it just, I, I mean, I've even seen, you know, in budgeting cycles come up and there's just very large swaths of the budget that are just set aside for tech debt. And I was actually joking with an executive recently. He, he was like, because he's in charge of innovation. He's like, I'm just going to start labeling all of my budget requests as debt. I'm just going to add debt to the end of it so they'll get approved because that seems to get approved. I, I often think that you, you can take the unread inbox a, a method to it, right? So if my inbox ever gets unwieldy, I'll just do a select all, mark it as unread, or mark it as read, put it yeah. in a folder if I ever need to get to it. And now I'm just focusing on the future. You know, I'm, I'm curious if you've seen kind of frameworks or things that work for these organizations to to stop thinking about the debt. I mean, some of it they have to deal with, but yeah. how do you push, push forward? To me, the debt is one of the largest challenges. I wish I had a great answer to that. It is obviously <laughs> one of the hard. challenges, right? You know, I mean, if, if we're looking at technical debt specifically, and uh, you've seen this, like you're describing it to an extent, uh, I've seen it as well, that, you know, organizations, IT organizations are implementing this year things they committed to sometimes three years ago, right? And they're not mm -hmm. fully implemented, fully rolled out. And, by the, and, and they know, it's like they know, it's not even like they don't know that by the time they put a tool, a technology, whatever, into the hands of the workforce, it's already outdated, right? You know, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's very, I think it would take a very progressive and in many ways brave organization to say, let's write that off. <laughs> the, you know, the market has outpaced our ability to implement yesterday's technology. But that would be a very rare organization. You know, I, I talk sometimes about this idea of funding the future and, you know, and, and we see the same thing in anything. It could be technology, it could be marketing, it could be whatever. The innovation budget's always the budget that gets cut, right? Mm -hmm. You take 10% of your budget, you put it against innovation and, you know, when budget cut, you know, budget cuts come around. It's not the things that aren't working that get cut. It's the things you haven't done yet that get cut. You know, I think organizations do need to be rigorous about doing kind of by whatever you think of it as a start, stop, continue kind of process or a start, stop, improve kind of process and be you know, kind of rigorous and, and relentless hatchet men <laughs> uh, for the things that aren't working or aren't serving the organization anymore, and then be very territorial about wrapping their arms around those funds as innovation funds uh, and ensuring that they don't get cut. I think even bigger, and you touched on this a little bit, than the technical debt a lot of times is the cultural debt. All of the assumptions that are held to be true, even if they no longer suit the organization, all of the people stuff, the human stuff that needs to be rethought, all of the unlearning that has to happen. I think a lot of times, and this has been one of my challenges 
with digital transformation as a term and as a practice in, in, in a lot of ways is that lends itself towards this sort of process where leaders mistake technology for transformation when fundamentally, first and foremost, it is cultural transformation. And if you can't evolve the culture of the organization to be more customer centric, to be more modern, to be more digital, you know, for lack of a better term, no amount of technology investment is going to improve the state of the organization as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And it really does come down to that human aspect, right? The, the same reason these transformations fail is the same reason, you know, people trying to get in shape fail or that your garage stays cluttered or, or whatever <laughs> human thing it is, right? Or, you know, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, you should see mine. And, and, and similar to how I joke, you know, there are some people that, you know, maybe they don't want to be in a culture of, of constant change and constant adaptation and, and all of that. And, and so as you shift as an organization, you know, maybe, you know, this is, you always hear this, the people who got you to where you are now, they might not be the people that are going to be there to get you to the next phase, but you need to balance that with creating a culture that, that can embrace the people that you have, right. And give them room. Yeah. So the one thing I, I, People probably get sick of me talking about it, but Gartner, it's actually behind my shoulder here. Gartner has their pace layering, uh, you know, uh, framework, and it's meant for systems. They At the bottom, mm. you have your systems of record, then your systems of change innovation. I like to think about that, though, as far as how people fit into it, right? Because if you have someone who sits in that level, in that system of record, they probably don't want things to change ever, or very rarely, right? Whereas you have someone that's in the system of innovation, they they would shoot themselves out of boredom if they were down at the, the system of record tier. And, you know, it's about finding that like right home and the right place for people in an organization to, to go through that cultural change. Otherwise I feel like you could lose a lot of good people if you don't do it right. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there's a lot, I think there's a lot of, a lot in what you're describing there, right? You know, we can probably have a four hour conversation about whether people suck at change or are great at change and how much of it is environmental and how much of it is personal and psychological and sociological and all of that. But fundamentally, whether it's people, processes or anything else, in most incumbent organizations, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? You've got a, you've got a, to one extent or another, successful business with a working business model, a customer base, a bunch of people in your workforce, right? Um, and those, you know, those are your systems of record people. There might be plenty of room for incremental change, but transformation becomes a very scary prospect mm -hmm. unless over time you find ways to bring those people along with you. I think one of the biggest challenges with any change initiative in any organization is always communication. You know, whether it's, you know, a bunch of sort of grassroots skunk worky types of initiatives that are pushing innovation left and right through the organization, or whether it's a leadership team that says this is the new way it shall be, and not actually explaining why is change important right now? Why is this good for the organization? How is it good for you? How will this, you know, 
what role will you play in the world as it changed and in it changes and in the new world? Why is this good for you? You know, how will it make your life better, right? You know, if you told somebody even in a system of record that you will be able to do more creative work, more strategic work, more rewarding work, a different kind of work, have a different kind of work-life balance instead of living your life in spreadsheets, let's say, because the spreadsheet stuff can be automated, even in a system of record, I might go, Actually, that sounds interesting. Tell me more. Mm. If you simply say your job is being automated or, you know, or, <laughs> hey, this thing that you've spent your career building is no longer real or relevant because the consumer has moved on, that's like a shock to the system, right? So there's, I think, a lot of stuff that comes down to communication and bringing people along, creating an environment where people feel bought into the kinds of change that may be happening around them. But also, you know, on the flip side of that to what you were saying, recognizing that in a legacy organization or a legacy industry, many of which, frankly, have not been disrupted to the extent those of us who wear digital transformation hats or whatever pretend they have been <laughs> or preach they have been, um, that there is a lot of value in the traditional bread and butter stuff that a lot of these organizations do. Yeah. And it's, it's so, I, I would imagine, I'm curious your observations, but I would imagine the investment into that people change is probably the, the correct amount of investments not put into it. Right. I, I mean, oh, absolutely. You, you know, we, we send people to some leadership training or training on whatever software you're going to be using, or even like mm -hmm. agile training or whatever it might be, but just straight up like, Hey, we're going to invest in you on what it means to be constantly adapting and constantly changing. Probably a lot of underinvestment out there. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's, I mean, underinvestment would be an understatement. <laughs> I think that <laughs> I just don't think that most organizations have that even within their sort of you know, within their line of sight at this point. And the thing, you know, you know, a leadership development program, even, you know, it, it's a relatively small investment at most organizations compared to, you know. A, a big technology refresh or whatever. And I don't know many organizations today that are doing things like, you know, AQ assessments for individuals or teams, or uh, even talking about AQ or doing adaptability programs or providing coaching to help people with change, you know, not with performance, but with change, or even for that matter, developing, you know, robust and I would say always on soft skills training, because, I mean, we know, I mean, the more and more the rote routine and, and sort of repeatable tasks can be automated, the more important the human stuff. I mean, we've been talking about humanity and transformation to begin with, but the more important the human stuff about kind of like what we bring to work and how we engage in work and what skills are not easily automatable, the more important those things become. But I feel like in a lot of ways, work has stripped those things out of us, right? We, you know, we've kind of over the course, for those of us who are old enough, we've been, you know, it's like we've been taught to work like machines not to yeah. work alongside machines <laughs> um, and working alongside machines requires us to bring human skills to the table, soft skills to the table um, in a way that probably many people don't today. 
Yeah, and you'd think some great leaders out there, they'd be looking at this hockey stick curve and they'd say, hey, to their employees, whether you're here with us or somewhere else, you're going to be encountering this as a human. And so we need to invest in you to give you the skills to deal with this this rate of change, uh, regardless, quite honestly, if you're here or somewhere else, just an right. investment to the value. Yeah, it's scary. <laughs> you know, I'd love you to um, elaborate a little bit on those AQ assessments. You know, what are they? What sure. do you get out of them? So, um, I mean, obviously, people are familiar with IQ, and I think increasingly people are becoming um, familiar or at least, you know, aware of, you know, emotional intelligence, you know, and EQ, the role that plays in decision making and leadership and in things like that. Um, So there's sort of like a third lane, adaptive intelligence or adaptability intelligence, which actually can be measured. So um, there are some organizations, including one called AQAI, for example, um, that offers an AQ assessment that looks at 15 different dimensions across sort of three general areas, ranging from sort of your attitudes and aptitudes to your competencies to the environment you're in. And just like any other assessment tool scores you, you know, your level of adaptability in this case specifically. And when you look at the kinds of things that make up adaptability, things like your personal level of grit or resilience or the degree to which, let's say, your environment is risk adverse or risk open, for lack of a better term, or the degree to which they give you sort of like, you know, the, things like even like mindfulness and 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 um, so forth are, are acceptable in an organization. Many of these things are changeable. In the case of the personal things like grit and resilience and sort of change readiness or an ability to unlearn and relearn, those are skills that can be developed. They become like muscles, just like any other skill, that the the more adept you become at spotting change or the more adept you become at unlearning old skills that no longer serve you and learning new skills, obviously the easier it becomes to turn that into a habit. Other things like environment might be out of an individual worker's an individual worker's purview, uh, but certainly is within the purview of the leader in an organization, right? So if you as a leader run AQ assessments across a sample or even everybody in your workforce and find that the same points of friction that are holding people back from feeling that they can lean into change are coming up as they, you know, kind of as, as they point to the different factors of their environment. Obviously, as a leader, you now have a sense as to whether there is something innate to your environment that is causing people to be more stagnant, more change resistant and so forth. And obviously, as a person, as an individual, um, if you find that your environment is just wholly unworkable, I can't grow, I can't change, I can't even be a adaptable in an environment that is so rigid, structured, so change adverse, then of course that gives you a clue that maybe it's time to look someplace else. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I love that it's got a path to improvement. And I guess I shouldn't be surprised since it's all about adapting, but you know, some other frameworks that are out there, they sometimes just kind of lock you in a box and people use it as an excuse like, oh, you know, you know me, I'm just a Libra. And it's like, no, you're being a jerk. (laughs) Right, (laughs) right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, to me, what makes a good AQ assessment powerful is that it gives you a sense of where you have opportunities for growth. And so few, like really none of the 15 attributes in the, in, in the AQAI assessment, none of them are fixed 
<laughs> um, every single one of them has a path to growth and an opportunity to improve. You know, and then it comes down to what's the framework you use. So again, going back to the Adapt Manifesto, it could be the 10 principles um, in that manifesto where you say, okay, well, I want to, you know, I want to, I'm going to, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z because those will help me, you know, to, to improve my adaptability. Or it could be, you know, virtually anything. I mean, obviously you can come up with any framework and say, okay, here are the 10 things I will do to increase my adaptability, or I will, you know, find a coach who specializes in change or whatever. Mm, interesting. Something I love to do is to kind of poke around to areas that we think are like shrouded in BS that are out there. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you and I both kind of have a, a disdain for the digital transformation phrase. <laughs> I'm curious, like where else are you seeing the BS that's out there right now? Too many buzzwords or nonsense? I mean, I think that it's, it's virtually everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and, and I mean, I think you would probably, I'm guessing you would agree that, you know, kind of, there's always some amount of sort of truth hidden within the BS or alongside the BS. I tend to see BS anytime anything becomes too absolute black and white. Mm. You know, so when you look at the rhetoric, for example, around automation and artificial intelligence and sort of widespread technological unemployment. Is that a possibility? Sure. Is it a practicality? Not really, right? right? You know, when you look at what AI really can do versus what we pretend AI can do, the use cases are relatively narrow and limited, you know, at least for the foreseeable future. Um, it is not nearly as powerful as, um, you know, as, 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 you know, we pretend it might be. Um, today, obviously, the things that are, I see, you know, are like, just like bullshit machines, um, you know, is <laughs> Web3. I believe that there is potential, there's plenty of promise, there are a lot of applications for Web3 technologies like blockchain and crypto, there is a lot of potential and promise for Web3 sort of mental models like decentralization, distribution, um, democratization, but a lot of the you know kind of the rhetoric for example around the extent to which web 3 will replace you know obliterate every model that came before it i think is you know is kind of bsy right yeah. you know the same way web 1 exists alongside web 2 today amazon and, and and google on the web 1 side facebook and you know twitter and web 2 or whatever um, you know these models will exist in parallel the decentralized organization the DAO or whatever it, it becomes will will exist alongside traditional corporate you know structures. Um, not everybody; it's not even feasible that everybody will become a creator, like with their own coin and build their own individual economy with a, their own community of followers, like. Who's the who's who's the community if everyone's a creator? Where do the doctors, the lawyers, the accountants, the engineers come from? Right? Like there's you know, does everything need to be on the blockchain? How do we do that? You know, we don't have the energy <laughs> to even support that, right? You you can't be both interested in sustainability and sort of environmental impact and you know, thinking the entire world is gonna go onto the blockchain, right? Like to just you know, you can't be both of those things at once, right? The world needs to you know, everything needs to be 
be in balance, right? Um, you know, so I think, yeah. you know, you know, you see a lot of BS around stuff like that. And, you know, typically when you see a lot of BS like that, what do you see? You see big brands feeling like they have to be first movers into something. And they do these things that amount to a little more than ill-advised PR stunts that over the long haul probably hurts the business or the brand, right? Um, you know, so I think that, you know, it's kind of like the BS and the dangers of falling prey to the BS and not being more measured and strategic and the way you think about how these things fit into the sort of environment at large. Um, so there's web, yeah. there's metaverse, right? All this stuff. I do believe there's something there. I do believe these things will become increasingly important. I do believe they will introduce everything from new ways to connect with employees and customers to entirely new business models. But I don't think it's going to be, I don't, it, you know, probably will not arrive as quickly as some people profess it will, you know, despite a lot of the rhetoric, even with digital transformation, you know, disruption is not an overnight event, right? Um, no. You know, like the companies who are scrambling with digital transformation today could have started 20 years ago, right? <laughs> but they didn't. That's why it's this game of catch up right now. But it didn't happen overnight. And, you know, the shift to any of these new, whether it's, you know, the next generation of the internet um, isn't going to happen overnight. And it's, it isn't going to be absolute, I don't believe. Um, but we do need to be thinking about where are we going what might it look like and what steps can we take to prepare ourselves and to experiment and to learn uh, what this will mean for our organization? Yeah, we're not going to take the Web 2.0 box, put it to the curb and just, you know, come come in from the store with our Web 3 box. And, and the hype cycle is real. Right. And just as importantly, what do you think? Like, you know, Amazon's going to go, all right, we had a good run here, but our time is up. You know, take it, you know, take it, you know, you know good luck to you, whoever comes next. It's like, that's never going to happen, I right? <laughs> I guess everything's decentralized now. We're all going to go home. Thank you. Yep. Shut down <laughs> those AWS servers. You know, everyone's got a server yeah. in the basement now. <laughs> the the hype cycle is real. We've seen it before, and but the funny thing is, yeah, a lot of real money gets spent during that hype cycle. But then there, as the dust settles, there'll be some cool, meaningful changes on the other Absolutely. side. Absolutely, right? yeah, yeah. I'm not by no means am I saying, oh, let's be luddites. Let's you know stick firmly to our existing infrastructure and business models. But you know, we also we've got to get through that hype cycle, get into that trough of disillusionment or whatever Forrester or Gartner calls it, and then you know we will find the practical applications that make sense and that work and that are relevant for consumers like right what are their preferences and you know and and how do we provide something that serves them right at the end of the day that's what it's about you know we've got to serve customers <laughs> so if our customers are changing we need to change with them uh, but at the same time we don't need to you know be shiny object chasers yeah i've been wondering if with web3 we need uh, like luddite 3.0 and we'll, we'll redefine what a luddite is in this new modern era <laughs> so greg i've enjoyed this I, I always like to finish on um i'd love it if you would share with us the best advice you've ever received in work or life 
Wow. I didn't know you were going to have a stumper question. <laughs> you know, it's an interesting, I mean, I guess maybe this kind of plays into where we were kind of going on, you know, in the later part of the conversation about Web 3.0. There was a time in the last internet bubble, um, I was working inside a traditional organization, but in an innovation role, working with a lot of companies that were building brand new digital things. And that created an, an opportunity where my boss and I actually both would get invited into a lot of friends and family for a lot of IPOs. And, you know, when we that, that was a relatively new experience to me. I was relatively young, certainly compared to where I am now, was not investing in a lot of companies for sure. Um, and we would get into these like these, these like crazy IPOs and we'd see people get into these like pre, you know, pre-IPO, you know, friends and family rounds and like ride it and make a zillion dollars, right? And he said to me, and we, I was like, and there was one instance, I won't say the company, but it was a company that, minted more than a few billionaires. You know, we got a little friends and family stock and he said, you know, and I was like, I don't know what to do. Like, do I, you know, ride this and hope it doesn't crash? Do I do it? He goes, he goes, and he basically his advice, I can't remember exactly what his wording was, but it was basically don't be greedy. It was like, look, have a number in your head. When it hits that number, feel comfortable getting out. Even if it continues to go up beyond that, you've made more than you would have made otherwise. So it was this kind of concept of when the world is going crazy around you, be happy with the gains you get. <laughs> you know, and I think, you know, especially now as you're watching people become, you know, bored ape millionaires and wondering why your, you know, farting ferret is sitting at half an ETH and isn't going up, you know, kind of be happy with the gains you get because you've, you're still doing better than you were before. That makes a ton of sense. I love it. Well, Greg, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It was good talking to you. Technology should serve vision, not set it. At Intevity, we design clear blueprints for organizational readiness and digital transformation that allow companies to chart new paths. Then we drive the implementation of those plans with our client partners in service of growth. Find out more at www.intevity.com forward slash podcast. You've been listening to C-Suite Blueprint. If you like what you've heard, be sure to hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you never miss a new episode. And while you're there, we'd love it if you could leave a rating. Just give us however many stars you think we deserve. Until next time.